0: It's good to see each one back tonight. Certainly appreciate the Mayhews who were visiting with us this morning. They've come back tonight. So we're glad to have them with us. They live down in Cumming, Georgia. And when you say that, don't put an S on it. It's coming. It's kind of like the book of Revelation. You don't want to put an S on the book of Revelation, as many people do. But we're glad to have them with us. And anybody else that might be visiting with us, I think that. Might be it for right now. Have you ever been considered odd? I'm sure that when we were kids, that there were many who considered us odd if we weren't within their group, or, you know, kids can be quite cruel at times, but sometimes that doesn't leave people when they grow older. They still look at people as odd and peculiar, and and we do the same thing in a lot of ways, not... Not necessarily being judgmental, but just recognizing how things are. But we need to understand that sometimes it's good to be in the different group. You know, when the church was established and the gospel started to be spread, Christians were thought of as different people. Uh, people that were following the way and therefore they were counted as somebody odd especially when they were going against the law of Moses that not necessarily going against the law of Moses but doing something that was different different from what the Jews were used to and probably a little bit odd to the gentiles who could see the conflict between Christians and Jews. But the church has been called many things. The church has even been called a cult. There are those today who believe that the church is a cult. And, of course, we know that's not the case. But we do know that the church is different. And it's different And I don't know if it's different. I don't think we're different. I don't think what God has revealed is different. It's the world that is different. Because they have not accepted what God has taught. They've rejected the truth. Yes, in the denominational world, there are things that they may believe that are correct. They may do some things that are correct. But we know what the Bible teaches as far as what we're really supposed to do. Tonight we're going to be taking our lesson from First Peter, second chapter, verses five through nine. If you'd like to go ahead and turn there, we're going to be looking at a peculiar people. Now, of course, in our world today, the church, as I said, being accused of being a cult at times, we know that's not the case for several reasons. But we can also look at what a cult really is, and we know that we're not a cult. I wonder if there were those in the first century that thought the church was a cult. Well, we can see how the brethren viewed the church, as Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. He says, "...Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ." Now, this kind of ties in with the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, when they had a priesthood. And, of course, we know that many things in the law of Moses and back then were antitypes to point to what we have today in the church and the church. But he goes on to say, Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a cheap cornerstone, elect, precious, and that, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people." that you should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now, oftentimes we could associate peculiar with distinctive, unique, something of only one kind. But Peter is using this word in the sense of ownership, God's ownership, God's property. Because at that time, These were God's chosen people. Many today still believe that the Jews are God's chosen people. But they are not. Christians are God's chosen people. Remember, he brought Jew and Gentile together into one body through the blood of Christ. So therefore, it makes one people one body. And we are the chosen, as Peter says here. You're a chosen generation. Well, you know, Israel was chosen at one time. If you will, turn to Deuteronomy, the 14th chapter. And we see how that, first of all, God needed a way to bring Christ into this world. He needed a lineage in order to bring Christ into this world. And as John says in 1 John 1, 1, 14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So therefore, we see God's plan coming through physical humanity. Christ becoming the word becoming flesh. But in Deuteronomy fourteen two, Moses writes, For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. Now, these verses do not teach what some believe uh, pre election. Being chosen before the foundation of the world to be saved or chosen to be lost. That is not what these verses are saying. But we see here that Moses writes for us that the Israelites at that time would be God's chosen people. Now did that mean that he loved the Gentiles less? No. It's just that he had to have a way to pull Christ in, or put Christ into this world. And it was through the Jewish lineage that he chose to do that. So... At that time, they were God's people. Today, Christians are God's people. When we think about, and I was thinking about this the other day, how that everything that God did was calculated. It was from the eternity, as we can see in Ephesians 3.11, the uh, church being in the mind of God, the eternal purpose. Everything was calculated. Everything was laid out already before it happened. Therefore, the church was in God's mind, Ephesians 3.11. And we know that the saved are in the church. So it would go from the Jews being God's chosen people to the church, those that make up the church, being God's chosen people. So we are a peculiar people. We are a chosen generation. We're a royal priesthood. We are the priests today. Yes, under the law of Moses, they had the priesthood. They had priests that could only come from the family of Aaron or the uh, Levitical priest uh, tribe. If you were not of the Levitical priesthood, you could not be a priest. But yet, under Christ, under the new law, each person that obeys the gospel, becomes a child of God, a Christian, becomes a priest, becomes a saint. We understand that in the religious world there are those who have taken mortal men and made saints of a level that they are to be worshipped. We do not find that in Scripture. But we are, as God's children, as members of His body, as members of the church, we are a chosen generation, a holy nation. Why? Because we have obeyed God's Word. When we look at Ephesians 1, 3, it says that all spiritual blessings are in Christ. So, being a child of God, all of our spiritual blessings are in Christ, so that makes us holy children. Even Peter tells us to be holy, the command to be holy. And we are when we obey God's Word. But there are some things I want us to look at tonight concerning peculiar if I can say this word peculiarity <laughs> as Christians, as the church. Now a lot of this information is not new information. But I hope we will look at it in a way because in a way that will just solidify who we are in the world as God's people. And for us to stand strong because we face so much opposition in the fact that we say that, and rightly so, that there's only one true church. That we go by God's word and God's word only. We get opposition to that. Some people have strange ideas about the church. Now, I can't vouch for every congregation that's ever existed with a a sign outside that said Church of Christ. We can't vouch for that because there are those who may have that on the outside of the building that are so far away from true Christianity that it would be staggering to look at. But we know what the true church is. Is that private information that only certain few can have? No. It is open to every person who is willing to study God's Word and to see that. You know you can explain to the willing mind in the honest heart, in less than five minutes that there is only one true church. It's that simple. Problem comes in when people let preconceived ideas, preconceived uh, thoughts and uh, pre-actions in their life, dealing in the religious aspect of life, to cloud their minds, to block their minds to the truth. So as we look at these things... Some people think, well, it's no big deal. Why do you make a big deal out of such things? First of all, we're peculiar in name. Now, the religious world has hijacked the term Christian, basically, and used it in a way that the Bible does not use it. In Acts 11th chapter, we find that uh, Paul and Barnabas... I went down to Antioch. And at that time, they spent a great deal of time with the church there in Antioch. And we're told it is there that the disciples were first called Christians. And notice that word, Christian. So the word Christian developed because of those that were following Christ. Now back then, they didn't have the denominational world. They didn't have... They did have... Uh, different views of religion because there were those philosophers there were those that uh, had ideas about the law of Moses so it wasn't the fact that there were no uh, ideas around dealing with religion but yet there were no established religions that I can think of unless I've missed something that puts it on the scale of today with the different religious bodies in the world and also many religious uh, groups that deny the existence of Christ altogether. Deny his deity. Deny the fact that he was a member of the Godhead. So we have varied views about religion in the world. But what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about being a Christian? Using that word. In 1 Peter 4:16. As Peter talks, if any man suffer as a Christian. Well, the world uses that term very loosely. Some say, well, all you have to do is just believe that God exists and you're a Christian. I actually heard a well-known radio personality say that. Someone asked him if he was a Christian. He says, well, I believe in God, so I guess I'm a Christian. Well, we know what the Bible teaches about being a Christian. And there are those who say, well, I accept Jesus Christ into my life, so therefore I'm a Christian. But what does this Bible say about becoming a Christian? We'll cover that a little bit later on. But as far as being called by that name, being known by that name, as James uh, was talking about those that uh, were blaspheming against God, those that were rejecting the truth, as he says in James 2, 7, speaking to the people, he says, Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? So what are we called by? We're called by Christ's name, Christian. So we have a peculiar name. And then, of course, a verse that we go to very often in trying to help people understand that there is only one true church, we go to Romans sixteen sixteen as Paul is signing off uh, in, uh, in his letter to the Romans, he says, The churches of Christ salute you. Now, those congregations were known as churches of Christ. Christ, Why? Because they followed Christ. They were identified. People were made known of those people by what they were called. So the name is peculiar. If a person or a group of people do not follow the doctrine of Christ, then they don't have the right to be called Christians. They don't have the right to be called the disciples of Christ. And we know that many people through their own desires have uh, perverted the Scriptures. But then there are those who do it out of ignorance a lot of times because they only believe what they've been taught. Unfortunately, they've been taught uh, incorrectly. But the name Christian is a biblical name. That's what the disciples were known as back in the first century and then on forward from there. So peculiar in name. Another area that we are peculiar in is our creed. Now, some people are going to kind of get chill bumps when I say that because we talk so much about the religious world going by their creed books. What is our creed book? It's the Bible. Basically, a creed is any system, any doctrine, or formula of religious or non-religious belief. Now we use the word generic on a lot of things, but that's basically a generic term creed. That means that there has something, there's something that has been established by which people are following. And yes, there are those man-made creeds in religion that people go by rather than going by what's in the Bible. Paul, as he wrote to the church at Colossae said, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Colossians 2.8 I like the last part of that verse where he says, And not after Christ. That shows something that is opposed to Christ. That is something that does not fit with God's Word. You know, as Jesus also said, as recorded for us in Matthew 15:9, talking about those that basically just gave lip service. They honored Him with their lips, but they didn't honor Him with their heart. He says, but in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So in other words, they had supplanted God's doctrine and were teaching things of man to be in its place. That goes on all the time. But we're a peculiar people. We're a chosen generation. Why? Because we put Christ's doctrine first. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, two verses that we're very familiar with. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That means that what we have came from God and not from man. It came from God, and it supplies everything that we need. We do not need additions. There are many religious groups who say, yes, we go by the Bible, but we have our creed book here. We have what we go by. And it's not hard to find the groups that do that. But yet here we find that God's Word is from inspiration. It's God-breathed. It came from God. And it supplies us so that we can be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. He has given us everything that pertains unto life and godliness. Also, on Sunday nights, we, uh, when Jim's here, we've been doing uh, lessons out of John. And we've been covering the prayer of Jesus in John 17. And John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them through thy word, thy truth, thy word is truth. So where do we go other than that? Why would we go to some man-made system, man-made ideas? Man-made commandments. Why do that? Because God has already provided us with everything we need. You know, that's a loving God. Truly. To provide us with what we need to get to heaven. And to be faithful to Him. What would have been terrible is to have a God that didn't care. That would send us things that were confusing in the religious world. And as Paul says, God's not the author of confusion. But that would have been a, a terrible God to do that to us expect, us, expect things out of us, and yet not give us the opportunity to live up to those expectations because we didn't have the right information. In 2 John 9, as John writes for, for us there, He says, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ Christ hath not God. You know, that's a very simple statement. If you don't have the doctrine of Christ, and so that puts it back on us, it makes us responsible for knowing what that uh, doctrine is. It's not a doctrine about Christ where you're studying the things about where he lived and who his family uh, happened to be, so on and so forth. The doctrine of Christ is what He taught. That is what we're concerned with. And John says it very plainly, those that don't have the doctrine of Christ don't have God. In other words, you're in trouble. How often did the Pharisees and the chief scribes and the priests and all turn away from Christ and turn away from the apostles and those Christians who were still trying to teach the truth Because they didn't want to give up their position in the synagogue. They didn't want to have to leave the Sanhedrin. Because they liked those positions more than following God. But it's important for us to understand that if we don't have the doctrine of Christ, we don't have God. Therefore, the responsibility falls back on us to know what that doctrine is. Isn't that what we're going to be judged by? Didn't Jesus say that we were going to be judged by the word. Whosoever rejecteth me and receiveth not my word has one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. There it is. It's important for us to embrace what he is saying there. And in light of what has recently been said about uh, atheists being able to go to heaven, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. That leaves every other way out. But yet we are very fortunate because we can have that path by obeying what God has said. He has given us the road map. I remember when I was about the seventh grade, I was going to play football for the, for the junior high school. And I remember the coach coming out, and he wanted me to be a quarterback, giving me a playbook. And I don't know if anybody's ever seen a playbook. I'm sure some of you have, but it tells each player where he needs to go on a particular play. The linemen, they have certain blocking assignments. Do you go to the left, do you go to the right, or do you go straight ahead? Those plays give us the direction to go. God's Word gives us the direction to go. We're very fortunate to have it. So... We are peculiar in creed in the sense that the Bible is our creed book. But it's not a man-made creed. It's inspired from God. Another peculiar thing that is so much different from the world, and people who are not familiar with the church that come in and see the way that we're set up as far as our worship, they're surprised sometimes at what takes place here. And sometimes it doesn't take place, because that's a good way to put it too. But in our organization, what does the Bible say about the church? Now, I understand the idea with many in the world is that there's one big church that Christ is ahead of, and each uh, denomination is part of that one body. And oftentimes they'll go to John 15, verses 1 through 4, I think there, to the vine and the branches to try to show support for that belief. But we know that's not what John, you know, it's not what Jesus was talking about there. He wasn't talking about denominations. But we see in the Scriptures how the church is supposed to be organized. When Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, in the very first verse, he says, he's talking about, he's writing to all the saints there, and to the bishops and deacons. Notice he didn't say bishop. He didn't make it singular, but it was plural, along with deacons. So the Bible speaks of a plurality of elders. Now there are religious organizations who have their hierarchy, and they may be called elders. But in the Scriptures, we're told that each congregation is to have elders, a plurality, and yet we're also told of the qualifications for those men. Oftentimes, a group may have elders, but are their qualifications the same as what's in the Scriptures? Oftentimes, you'll hear of an ordained minister or an ordained priest. Or, Friends, there are no ordination rules in the Bible except to be a Christian. I've had people ask me, well, do you have to go to school to preach? No. As long as you're preaching the truth, as long as you know the book. That's the only qualification to stand up and preach, other than being a Christian, where it's going to be effective. Being a child of God. But yet God has decided that the church is to have elders and deacons. In Acts the 14th chapter. In verse 23, the word ordained is used. But these men were ordained according to the qualifications. And when I said there are no ordination qualifications, I mean as the religious world looks at it, we can look at the qualifications that are set forth for us in 1 Timothy 3 and also Titus when it comes to qualifications for elders. That is all we have to go by. We don't have some other source giving us any other information. And as Paul's habit was, was to travel around. And you know he, he had three missionary journeys to where he would travel and he established churches on those journeys. There were times that they would go back and visit those congregations to make sure things were okay. See what happened to be going on at the time. Well, in Acts 14, it says, When they had ordained them elders in every church. Plural on elders, singular on church. Also, Paul told, and when he wrote to Titus, he says, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou should have set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. So we see that elders are to take the oversight of the congregation. That does not mean elders rule with an iron fist. Not at all. It means they rule according to God's Word. Also, when we look at deacons, there are qualifications for deacons. There are places that may have deacons and the man may be single. Well, we know that the uh, qualifications for elders and deacons are supposed to be the husband of one wife. There are those who are putting women in eldership roles. I still can't figure out how they meet the qualification, the husband of one wife. I don't want to go into that. That's another subject for another time. But we see also, and when we look at Acts 6, chapter, we understand that the thing going on there was the widows, there were complaints that the widows were not being taken care of, they weren't getting food and things like that, and the apostles told the, the brethren to pick them out, men, to take care of this problem. And yet we see that, and know that a deacon is in a serving position, handling those things uh, as we find in Acts six twenty three. So the organization, no one-man no one rule, we don't find that anywhere in Scripture by command or example or implication or inference. We find it nowhere. But we do find elders and deacons, and deacons are serving under the elders. The elders are the ones who have the oversight. Acts 20 and uh, verse 28, as Paul wrote to the elders, the Ephesian elders, telling them that they were to feed the flock spiritually. They had the oversight. We're told that the elders are to rule the congregation. In other words, carry out God's word for the congregation. So it's important to understand that there is a particular organization. We are a peculiar people by some who do not understand the organization in Scripture. You may have a lot of deacons and one man as a pastor. Sometimes you may be called an elder. You've got the hierarchy where it goes right on up the ladder, several levels. We don't find that in Scripture. So we are peculiar people in organization. And the last point I want to make tonight is we're peculiar in our worship. And this kind of gets back to what I talked about when people come into our assembly. The things that they see and don't see, it strikes them as odd. Why? Because they've been exposed to the religious world and they're used to seeing certain things. So it's not unusual for someone to come in and say, where's the piano? Where's your band? Where's your orchestra? Well, we are peculiar in our worship. People will say, you can do anything you want as long as you're sincere to God. As long as you worship God, you're fine. You know, from a human standpoint of view, that would be nice, wouldn't it? From the human standpoint, it'd be great just to be able to do whatever you wanted to, when you wanted to. No restrictions. No rules. I even saw a marquee one time out in front of a, a, I don't know what kind of congregation it was, but talking about no rules. I thought that kind of strange. Because what's a commandment? (laughs) It's basically a rule. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. But in our worship, we sing, which is not unusual to the world, but how we do it is strange. Oh, you are the people that don't use instruments. Well, we do use an instrument, don't we? We absolutely do. God gave us a natural instrument called vocal cords, and we're to sing and make melody in our heart. Colossians three sixteen, Ephesians five nineteen, singing and making melody in your heart unto the Lord. But not to have instruments throws people off. The sad part is, is when you explain it to them, they don't like it, because why? They want the instruments. I don't see anything wrong with it bible says doesn't say you can't use instruments well the bible doesn't say a lot of things does it (laughs) does that mean it's okay to do something that the bible has no mention over it's a failure to understand how we are to understand the bible another thing is the lord's supper this is unusual for a lot of people because Where they worship, they may take it once a month, once a quarter, twice a year. How often did the disciples of the Lord, the church, take the Lord's Supper? The first day of every week. And we know Acts 20 verse 7 says, And the disciples gathered on the first day of the week to break bread. People say, well, it doesn't say every week there. Well, actually, it does. When you look at that word "sabbaton" in the Greek, and you, you look at the meaning of that word, it says every first day of the week. So it is unusual. Some people will use wine on the Lord's Supper, alcoholic wine. I think there's some things that might be non-alcoholic wine, like there used to be some non-alcoholic beer or something. But the thing is, is every, fi- every place you find the Lord's Supper and the fruit and the, the Lord's Supper mentioned, it's the fruit of the vine. The word wine is never mentioned. Not one time. It's the fruit of the vine. And really, the word wine is generic. It can mean fermented or unfermented. But yet, there are those in the religious world who will use fermented fruit of the vine, wine, alcohol. But we don't. We take the Lord's Supper the first day of every week. People say, well, where, where is that? Well, not only do we see it in Acts 20 and verse 7, but you can go to Acts 2.42. When the church was established on uh, the day of Pentecost, and they talked about that the disciples continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in the breaking of bread. So there it was established. It was set forever on that day, the day the church was established. Our giving, 1 Corinthians 16, we give. Now, a lot of people, if you don't go and you really study what Paul says here, and, and we teach, but we teach correctly, but yet a lot of people don't understand really what Paul is addressing here. When he says on the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, he actually is talking about the collection for the saints, That the collection was going to go to Jerusalem. I've had people try to say, argue and say, well, see there... There's no command to give on the first day of every week. Back then, they were collecting for a special occasion. And so, therefore, there's no command to give. There's no example. No, Well, that's not correct. If you do a little study, and you go back and study the, about the Romans, there was a, a Roman emperor named Trajan had a, a lower subordinate, And they observed what the Christians did and and his name was Pliny or Pliny and he wrote a letter to Trajan and in that letter he talked about these people, the Christians, having a collection. So that right there shows that there was a collection. There was a collection under the Old Testament system. There was a collection in the patriarchal age. So what makes people think that we all of a sudden don't have to give? But yet we are to give. And then, of course, our preaching. In acts 20, verse 7, Paul preached at that point. Not only did they gather to break bread, but Paul preached to them. And then, of course, our prayers. These are the five acts of worship. Nothing added, nothing taken away, than what we have, and we find examples of this going on. As a matter of fact, as I uh, just a moment ago talked about Acts 2.42 and the uh disciples continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Prayer is mentioned there. We find prayers going on in the churches. So hopefully I can cover this one point i didn't think I was going to get to peculiar in the plan of salvation people want stand and, and object to you saying a person's got to believe person's got to hear God's word, they've got to turn from their sins they've got to repent they've got to confess, they don't have problems with those but when you come to the part about being baptized for the remission of sins that's where they draw the line in the sand and say that is not true the Bible doesn't teach that, you're saved by just accepting Christ or going through some confirmation period or something like that, so that's where the line is drawn they're not, And I know that there may be uh, religious groups who teach baptism for the remission of sins. If I'm not mistaken, I'd have to go back and check this. Seventh-day Adventists and Mormons teach that uh, baptism for remission of sins is necessary. But we know they are not the church. But we know what the church teaches. We read what the church did. We see the examples in the whole book of Acts of what people did. So therefore... We are unique in standing for what the Bible teaches as far as person having salvation. Those people in the first century did that. That's why they could be called Christians because they followed what Christ said. They followed the teaching. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Jesus sent the twelve apostles out into the world to preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says that we are to do that. So these are just a few things. There are probably some more we could come up with, how that we are peculiar. But Peter says we are a peculiar people. And that's because we follow God's word. Jesus talked about the the gate being narrow. He talked about the gate being wide. This is where we enter the narrow gate. Why? Because we're we're satisfied to stay with what God has revealed in His Word for us to do without going to the left or right, seeing the Scriptures for what they are, God's Word to us, telling us what we need to do in order to have eternal salvation. Now I've outlined very quickly though what it takes for a person to obey the Gospel. Hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized. That's according to God's plan. It's not according to our plan. Uh, The only creed book that has that in it, that we follow, is the Bible. So it's important for us to understand, and and we should feel good about being peculiar people. I'm not talking about being arrogant. It's not what I'm talking about. But we should feel good that God has made these requirements for those who will believe and those who won't. Someone once said, God put baptism at the door of the church to let the believer in and to keep the unbeliever out. That weeds people out. Uh, Most of you know that Timothy is in basic training, and uh, we got a letter from him the other day, and he mentioned in that letter they're at at a point now where they're starting to weed out those that can't make it, those who don't make it. And that's, that happens in all branches of the military. You know, they've got a section in there. If you fail to meet minimum requirements when, within such and such days, then you're discharged. Sometimes those boys go, and they think they can still do things their way while they're in there. And for, you, for those of us who have been in the military, we, <laughs> we know that's not the case. You do it their way or you don't do it. You do it God's way or you don't get the benefits of being in Christ. But we pray that you'll come if you need to respond to the invitation. We pray that you'll come as we stand and sing.